Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. It's hard in that we usually think we're righteous, but we're too easily revealed to be sinners. It's hard because we're forced to admit that we need you. So help us to consider what it really means to follow Christ and to hear your word. Thank you that today we're learning once again from John Mark, a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, recently a controversy broke out online, hard to believe, I know, and it was about a funeral and whether or not the gospel was proclaimed there. And I took notice of this because the criticism was directed at my good friend Ray Kanata. Ray is the pastor of Redeemer uh, PCA Church in the uptown section of New Orleans. And if you've been to New Orleans, you know it's not the typical place to go. However, you have to understand, Ray is easily the most stereotypical pastor in the PCA. Whatever you think PCA pastors are like, Ray is it. And if you don't believe me, just look at this. We have a slide for you. The reality is Ray is the most unique pastor in the PCA. Ray is the mayor of Magazine Street, a member of the crew of the Rolling Elvi. That's that center picture, where he leads their dance group, the Jailhouse Rockers. And he's a star of the documentary, The Man Who Ate New Orleans. Uh, originally from New Jersey, Ray moved to New Orleans right after Katrina hit, and he fell in love with the city. Uh, it's food and it's people and the people who are the pillars of the city and the problems of the city and everyone in between. And along the way, Ray became convinced that 1 Peter 2.17 is one of the church's strongest evangelistic tools that says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And Ray is quick to remind you that that says, honor everyone. This conviction led him to accept an unusual invitation to perform the funeral for Kent Frenchy Brule, New Orleans' most famous mobster, who had been stabbed to death by his roommate. Ray said saying yes seemed like a problem. Saying no seemed like a bigger problem, and so he agreed with some serious trepidation. When the ceremony began, I said something like this, and I'm quoting Ray here. He said, friends, you all knew Frenchie. You knew him in all his contradictions, his beauty, and his brokenness. Some of you knew Frenchie as generous. Some of you knew Frenchie with a bottle or a nail gun. The only one who knew the real Frenchie perfectly, though, was God. And God loved Frenchie deeply. We know this because God made Frenchie. God sent his son to die for Frenchie. And God watched over and sustained Frenchie. It's the only way we can explain how he survived this long. 
God created everyone with value and dignity in his image. Friends, he hurt people. He also blessed people or you wouldn't be here. And in that way, he's like all of us. I'm in no position to finally judge anyone else. But I know that no matter where we've been, God is always eager to welcome us home when we trust in him. Some of Jesus' closest friends were degenerate criminals, and he had a special affection for them and a delight in giving them mercy when they knew they needed it. I don't know the eternal fate of Frenchie. That's not my job. But I hope to see him in glory, though. But I do know that our eternal fate doesn't rest on being nice, on keeping rules, on being respectable, but on trusting Jesus' gift of eternal life. And that's the good news for all of us today. And that sounds well and good, but he preached that to a church full of essentially the underworld of New Orleans. Afterwards, Ray gave what he thought would be his last prayer and benediction. <laughs> and then he jumped in front of a second-line parade down Bourbon Street with the media there with thugs and hookers and musicians and mobsters dancing down the whole length of Bourbon Street. And after arriving at a bar at the end of the parade, Kanata says he got to know some of Frenchie's friends personally. It might sound strange, but as the party went on, this misfit crowd became more and more beautiful to me. Honor everyone, the Apostle Paul, Peter tells us. We're all dumpster fires before God, and the more respectable you are, the harder it is to see it. But only when we can embrace this can we honor everyone. It has to start with seeing our own need. In all the Gospels, it's always the broken that Jesus calls. We have one such story today. I actually called Ray and got his okay to share that uh, uh, story. He didn't okay all of the pictures. So, but I'll deal with that later. Um, in our text today, in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, we have the story of one of these broken, needy people. It's a transformation story from a flawed life to a follower of Christ. Christ saw in the flawed life of Levi the tax collector, as he's called in Mark and in Luke, a broken, needy man who came to be known as Matthew, the writer of the gospel and the great evangelist. Christ still sees broken men and women with an eye to what they'll look like healed and whole. He sees in us what no one else sees. This passage isn't really about us, and it's not even about Levi. Hopefully, it'll become obvious who it's really about. Now, in this passage, Jesus is saying that my message is absolutely and utterly new. It's absolutely and utterly different. It's different than the religion of the Pharisees. It's different than the religion of the past. My whole approach is I don't particularly like self-righteous people. I like sinners way more. And this whole passage tells us what a real Christian is. And a real Christian is someone who's been called, someone who is a disciple, and someone who has been made utterly new. That's what this passage teaches us. What does it mean to be a Christian? A real Christian is someone who's called, someone who's a disciple, and someone who's been made new. So let's look at this in more detail. What's a Christian? A Christian is someone who's had the same experience as Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. And so that's where we'll start, Mark 2, starting at verse 13. And the first thing we see is you are called 
by the king. You're called by the king. It says, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now let me say something that may be surprising to some of you. You're not a Christian unless you have, like Levi, experienced a call. You're not a Christian unless you're aware of having been called. Christianity is not something you take up. It's something that takes you up. Let me say that again. It's not something you take up. It's something that takes you up. In fact, I would say this is one of the main ways you can know you're on the right path. You have a sense of being worked on. A Christian is someone who's called. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we have to be very careful not to assume that God always works in the same way, that however he works in your life is how he works in everybody else's life. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, which we looked at last week, it says Jesus came home. We read at the beginning of Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So I want you to see something here, and it's important. On the surface, it looks like the way Jesus dealt with the paralytic and the way Jesus dealt with Levi are totally different. Paralytic had a bunch of friends. We're told he's trying to get in the house where Jesus was speaking. There's so many people there, he can't get in. So they went up on the roof, and in Jesus' name, tore a hole in the roof and lowered him down. So here's somebody who looks like he's doing everything possible to get to Jesus. And the way Jesus meets Levi is different. Here's Levi. He's at work. He's a tax collector. He's at the tax booth. And just imagine yourself. You're at the desk. People are coming to you. They're paying you money. You've got your ledger book, and you're saying, okay, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so is giving this amount, and you're crossing names off the ledger. Suddenly, this guy shows up and says, follow me. Well, Levi's not after this. He's not looking for this. He hasn't been praying about this. So you say, well, this looks like Jesus operates in a totally different way. Well, first of all, we need to be careful about standardizing the Christian experience. We shouldn't do that. It's easy to think, you know, I came to Christ in a, in a crisis. So if somebody else didn't come in a crisis, well, you know, you have to wonder. Maybe you came because you did a lot of study and you came to Christianity through an intellectual experience and then you mistrust somebody who came through an emotional experience. Some people feel like you have to walk forward in a service when the preacher makes an invitation. That's the only real way to do it. It's very dangerous to try to standardize anything about the Christian life from these verses. And yet there is something in common here and that's to be called means that you sense Jesus is now in charge. You sense Jesus is in charge. The first characteristic is to be called. And you sense you're not the one who's in charge of this spiritual adventure. There's an outside power that's in charge. Now, somebody says, I can see that in the story of Levi. Here's Jesus coming in, calling Levi right in the middle of the workday. That's not how it worked for the paralytic. Oh, yes, it is. 
Just look, the paralytic's not after the Jesus he found. The paralytic was after a faith healer. He thought Jesus was going to heal him. So he comes down from the roof. He's lying there in a mat. He looks up at Jesus. You remember what Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. That's not why I'm here. I'm, here. I'm a paralytic. I can't walk. You don't seem to understand. But you see, it shows us that Jesus is in charge. Both scenarios, as different as they look, the common thing is Jesus is the one who's in charge, and Jesus is the one who's doing the calling. The paralytic thinks he's in charge, but he's not. Jesus is. Paralytic thinks he's the one seeking Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 3, no one seeks God. Anyone who's ever taken any sort of active spiritual search, if you ever find the real God, you always and inevitably kind of look back and realize you weren't trying to find the real God. You had some other kind of God in mind. You wanted a God who would do this thing and this and that uh, for you. But God very often uses that kind of search to find you, and when he finds you, he brings you up short. To be called is to experience an alien power at work in your life. And if you don't sense that, if you don't sense somebody is after you, if you don't sense something's going on, if you don't sense that, eventually, that's not real Christianity. Jesus is doing something in you, to you, through you. It's not all you. And once you learn some of the Christian faith, it gets very hard to go back, especially if you're a thoughtful person. I remember talking to somebody a number of years ago who didn't want to be a Christian. This person didn't want to be a Christian because there were some lifestyle issues in his life, and he wanted to pursue those, and he knew uh, that Christianity and the ethical standards of Christianity wouldn't allow that. And he recognized the truth of Christianity, he just didn't want it because he realized it demands changes, and he didn't want to make any changes. So he got mad at Christianity, got mad at Christians, got mad at the church because he knows what God wants and what God's doing, and he's uneasy and unsettled, and he's struggling with that. And I think there's a guy who's being called because he can't get away from that struggle. God wants me, and he wants me to do this, and there's a struggle, a battle going on. And to some degree, when a person gets mad at Christianity and sort of angry and feels like God's after him, I actually have more hope for them than for the person who says, oh, yeah, you know, I've always been a Christian. I've always gone to church. It's very comfortable. You know, religion's a private thing. I don't think you should get too excited about it. You know, I don't care how many Sunday school pins that person has. That person's not called. The person struggling is the one who's called. There's a sense of an outside force coming in and changing you. And if you're a Christian, you sense there's something different coming into your life, and that's Jesus, and he's in charge. And that's the first way you can tell that you're called. The second way you can tell that you're called is you realize you're confronted with a person and not an idea and not an ideology and not a theology or a philosophy. Jesus comes and he says, follow me. He doesn't say follow that or follow this or follow these. He says follow me. The real Jesus is always talking about himself. It's true. He says stuff like Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. There's this 
radical self-centeredness about Jesus. That, that doesn't sound nice, but it's true. I mean, look at what he said. Before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and to those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. You must love me and hate your father and mother, meaning the devotion you should have for me is so much greater than the devotion you should have for anybody else, including your father and mother, so much so that your devotion to your father and mother should look like hate compared to your devotion to me. Look at what he says about himself. It's radically self-centered. What does that mean? Well, one of the ways you know you're being called is you're confronted with the radical self-centeredness of Jesus. Let me be as frank as I can. When people are investigating Christianity, when they have lots of questions, when they're wondering, there's one type of question that I'm not very patient with. There's actually lots of things that I'm not very patient with, but there's one kind of question that I'm not very patient with. You'll say, you know, I'm interested in Christianity. What's the Christian view of this? What's the Christian view of that? What's the Christian view of marriage? What's the Christian view of social justice? What's the Christian view of doing this or that? And I know what they're saying. I'm interested in Christianity, but I don't want it to be too narrow. I want it to be too restrictive. You know, I need to live my life. Can Christians participate in these activities? Can we do this stuff? And when you ask those questions, you're on the wrong trail. Because the Bible says first, you have to decide who he is before anything else. Now, over the years, I've had lots of people ask me these kinds of questions. What's the Christian view of homosexuality? And what they're saying is, I'm interested in Christianity, but I want to know what your church teaches about homosexuality. Or they may ask about evolution, or the role of women, or some other culture war issue. And with all due respect, who cares? Because first, you have to ask, is Jesus who he said he is? And if he is who he said he is, then he's the authority. Then you have to figure out what he's going to teach about all these issues. Do you realize how ridiculous it is to say, I want to know whether I like your view of the issues? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is he the Savior of sinners? Is he the Creator? Is he the Judge? Is he the King? You have to work on that first. Once you settle the question of authority, then you can answer all the other questions. Let me put it to you another way. I've had people say, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but some of these scriptures, some of these verses, you know, they say things like, you can't marry a non-Christian and, and stuff like that. And are you kidding me? You know, they want to be able to call the shots. And I'm like, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the judge of the earth, and he says, I want all Christians to only marry Christians. A lot of people struggle with that. They don't like that. So what? That's nothing. If I'm going to rule and reign with him forever, if he really is who he said he is, then he has the right to ask for that because he's the creator, redeemer, judge, and king because he's wisdom itself. He can ask for anything. And the only wise response is, of course, absolutely, I'll do what you say. But some, no, you know, I want to marry whoever I want. 
And even though Jesus is who he said he is, even though he's the son of God, even though he's the judge of all the earth, even though he's the savior who died for me, I can't come to him. And I say, are you nuts? What's the matter with you? You're not thinking clearly. You're misunderstanding Christianity because you're not getting Jesus. It's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of sense. If Jesus is who he said he is, then the only rational response is to do what he says regardless of what he says. If he's the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of all creation, then the only rational response is to follow the king. And you follow by doing what he says. If he's not creator, redeemer, judge, and king, then of course none of this makes any sense. And with all due respect, if Jesus isn't Lord and Savior, who cares? what he teaches about marriage? Who cares what he teaches about sexuality? Who cares what he teaches about evolution? If he's not those things, then his view of those things is irrelevant. First, you have to figure out, is he Lord and Savior and King? And he says he is, and he says, follow me. In other words, I won't deal with you about anything else until you decide how you're going to deal with me. I'm not going to tell you about anything else. I'm not going to tell you why your life went this way or that way. You have to decide who's the authority in your life. Is it you or is it me? That's the call. Whenever I see people who just love to talk about theological issues, and we have more than one of them in our denomination, or they love to argue about creation and evolution, or they're fascinated by miracles and healings and so on. And yeah, all these things are interesting and important, but it's never the first thing. If the Holy Spirit's really after you and you're really meeting the real Jesus who says, follow me, you have to come to grips with who he is. You have to figure out who he is and then decide how you're going to relate to him. Then after that, you can figure out what he teaches about this and that and what he'll have us do. You don't say, well, I'll come to Christ if I like his agenda. You have to say, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, then I have to get with his agenda. His agenda would be life for me because he's my creator and redeemer. Either he is your creator and your redeemer and his agenda, whatever it is, is life for you, or he's not. And you probably shouldn't have anything to do with him. Have you heard that call? Have you heard him come after you and say, follow me. Maybe today's the first day. Maybe for the first time you're realizing, gee, Christianity isn't just about getting more religion and adopting a certain set of ethics. It's coming to grips with who is the Lord of my life, who's Savior of my life. Is it me or is it Jesus? It's all or nothing. So first a Christian is called by someone, and that someone is Jesus. Next, the way you know you're called is because you're called to the king. You're called to the king, verses 15 through 20. Levi's life is revolutionized, so he immediately gets up. He just leaves the tax booth. It doesn't say, you know, he packed everything up and put away his ledger books and, you know, put the money in the deposit bag for the deacons or any of that kind of stuff. It just says he got up and followed Jesus. And then he decides to host a reception or a party at his home, and a disagreement breaks out in the middle of dinner. I don't know if you have a family where disagreements break out in the middle of dinner. I could tell you lots of stories about that. Um, some of them are really funny. And some of them are not. 
But that's what happens. And Jesus and the Pharisees are using a couple particular words here uh, in this text, starting at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those are the two key words, the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So a whole ton here, I'm going to focus in on the first part. The reason this is curious is because elsewhere in the New Testament, both Paul and Jesus reject this way of talking about the righteous and sinners. In Romans, 1, or Romans 3, verse 10, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. In Luke 18, we read, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, if Jesus says that and Paul says that, why are they using those terms here? Because this is how Pharisees talk. The Pharisees divide the world into the good people and the bad people. And Levi is a classic example of bad people. The fact that I'm using this arm doesn't mean this half of the room is bad people, okay? So don't freak out or anything. Okay? Levi's a tax collector. Tax collectors, then as now, are generally not very popular. Okay? He collects taxes for the Romans. That they weren't hated because he's just helping the oppressors. He's also demanding bribes and he's corrupt and he's lining his own pockets. One of our problems with understanding this is we live in a world where people say, you know, there's, there's little sins and there's big sins. There are good people who do little sins. I'm a good person. I do little sins. Of course, no one's perfect. The air is human, blah, 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 blah. However, there are bad people. Go this side this time. There are bad people. They do big sins. And Pharisee religion divides people between the good and the bad, between the little sins and the big sins. What are the big sins? You know, bribery, extortion, traditionally crime and sexual irregularities are big sins. So we see the bad people and the good people. The good people still do things that are wrong, but they're little sins. You know, we're beyond that now. I'm a tolerant person. I live in Northern Virginia. But Pharisee religion is way more pervasive than you realize. It's not just how people operate. It's how the heart operates. Think about that. I'm battling a cough and a head cold this week, so you have to forgive me. I have no idea if I'm getting through this or not. Maybe doing some tag team preaching if we have to. I was reading an interesting article this week uh, about this, and it was about Joe McCarthy. Some of you may remember, not very many of you, um, that he was a United States senator from Wisconsin. And he was pretty much hated uh, all over the country because he was going after people and accusing them of being communists. And in the 50s, that was a big deal. 
And it mentioned in the article that Joe McCarthy was a known sexual harasser of women. He was always grabbing and pinching his secretaries and embarrassing them, and he was always doing that, but he was faithful to his wife. And it says people tried very hard to bring him down, but nobody ever thought about bringing up the issue of sexual harassment. Why? Because back then, in the 50s, that was a little sin. If you were faithful to your wife but harassed your secretaries, that was a little sin. Being faithful to your wife, that was important. Adultery was a big sin. Sex outside of marriage was a big sin. Sexual harassment was a little sin. Well, think about it now. It's totally reversed. People are getting kicked out of office for sexual harassment. It's a big sin. Adultery? That's not going to keep you out of elected office. We have lots of people that are elected to office that are guilty of that. It's changed. And the problem is they were wrong in the 50s and they're wrong now. It was big sin both ways then and both ways now. And we've, we've just sort of changed the categories of little and big sins. And I think if Jesus came, he'd be like, you guys really don't understand little and big sins very well. Here's the point. You can think there's big sins and there's little sins. I only do the little sins and I don't do the big sins. They're bad people. They're what's wrong with this world. I'm okay. And that means the reason you do these things, the reason you stay out of the big sins and you only have the little sins is so you can say at some sort of unconscious level, God owes me. I've made sacrifices. I've said no all over the place. I said no to this and that, and I believe in traditional values, and I've done all the good stuff, and I go to church, and I tithe, and I fast, and I do these things, and God owes it to me to save me. He owes it to me to hear my prayers. God owes it to me. I only do little sins. And without actually coming out and saying it, the faith you profess with that kind of an attitude is that you think you're better than other people. You're bringing your sacrifices, the thing you've done. You defend yourself by your good works, by your sense of being superior to others. You look down your nose at lower class America, <coughs> at the rest of the world the other side of the county. The Pharisees were obvious. The Pharisees brought their sacrifices. Remember, they brought literal sacrifices, animal sacrifices, brought their tithes, brought the offerings, and looked down their nose at everybody else who didn't do it as well as they did. God owes me a good life because I'm better than other people. Luke 18, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pharisee was obvious, but everybody does it. We all do it. We may not do it out loud, but we certainly think it. We do it inside. So to them and to you, Jesus is saying, Look away from your good works to the only good works that will save you. What's the only good works that will save you? His work. Jesus' work. He says, that's why I've come. 
And here I am eating with tax collectors and sinners because they need my good work. It's pretty obvious that their good work isn't going to cut it. And what he's trying to say is the only way you get out from under the problems is to look away from yourself. Don't look and see what you have done. Look and see what I have done. Don't look at your sacrifices. Look at mine. That's what will burst the old wineskins. So we're called by someone and we're called to someone. And last we learned, we're called for the king. The last two verses, 21 and 22, we're called for the king. Called by the king, to the king, and for the king. It says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So, for our culture, that's just a weird parable. Okay? I don't know how many of you carry around wineskins. It's not particularly common. But in ancient cultures, the skins of goats were stripped off as nearly whole as possible and then tanned and sewed up to make a wineskin. And the new wineskin would be filled with new wine because there was a natural elasticity and strength of the new wineskin would allow that fermenting wine to expand. But if you put the new wine into an old wineskin that was now brittle and inflexible, there'd be no room for that fermenting wine to expand and it would burst the skin and both the wine and the wineskin would be lost. And that's what he's saying. But what he's telling us by using that wineskin uh, analogy is there has to be a change in the way you think about things. Why? Because what he is bringing is new. It's the new wine. And you don't put new wine into an old wineskin. The old wineskin doesn't have the flexibility. And they, the Pharisees, represent an old legalistic religion, the old wineskin. And the new wine, the gospel of Christ, needs a new wineskin. It needs a faith based on grace, not based on laws and rules. Christianity is the new wine. That's always been the case with Christianity. And of course, then Jesus is saying this because he's eating with the bad people. What does eating mean? It meant so much more to them than it does to us. To sit down and eat means to have close fellowship with someone. To eat with somebody is to say, let's have a relationship. And Jesus eats with sinners. And he's telling us, I love to eat with sinners. Are you like Jesus? How do you deal with people with moral failures? When people come and tell you about something they've done, where they've really failed and they've let themselves down and they've let God down, they let your family down, how do you treat them? Are you impatient? Are you indignant? Do you say, why can't you pull yourself together? Do they sense that you really can't understand why they've done such a thing? Even if you're not so insensitive to say, you did what? How can anybody do that? I mean, if that's your response, you're the self-righteous one in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. If you don't believe those same awful things live in your heart, then you don't believe you're a sinner like them. And as a result, it's hard to be sympathetic, and you can't give hope to people like that, and people won't tell you their problems, and they won't feel loved by you, and you can't give them hope. And you can't say, Jesus deeply loves you. Jesus runs to people like you. Jesus runs to the helpless and to the hopeless and to the repentant. 
He never leaves that out. He goes to the worst sinners, and he never says, don't worry about the repentance part. I'll cover that. They always still have to repent, regardless. It doesn't matter big sins or little sins. We never get away from the repent and believe. But Jesus can't resist people who come to him and open their hearts and tell them the truth. And do we say that? Do people get that impression or feel that? Or do they think we're kind of cold or we don't know what to do with people who do that sort of thing? How do you treat people who've suffered a moral failure? That'll tell you whether you're a Pharisee or not. That'll tell you with how much of a Pharisee still lives inside. Not just that, how do you deal with your own moral failure when you let yourself down, when you fail, when you're devastated and you can't face God and you can't face others and you can't face yourself in the mirror because you failed again? And there's also a sign that your old self-righteous wineskin just hasn't been burst yet. When you let yourself down and you let other people down, do you beat yourself up? Do you knock yourself around? And that shows that Jesus isn't really your Savior. You're your Savior, and your Savior failed. Your Savior is dying. That just leads you to despair because your real Savior is yourself, and you've dropped the ball, and you've failed, and you're in ruins. If Jesus is your Savior, if you've transferred all your trust to him, well, Jesus eats with sinners. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3. Now, Paul, remember, he thought he was one of the good people. He did all the good stuff. Pharisee of Pharisee, Jew of Jews. I know more about this stuff than the rest of you. I'm one of the good guys. And Jesus came to him and changed his life. And he writes, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, I used to look to my own righteousness. I used to look to everything I did, and I thought God owes me a good life. And now I realize my only hope is to be found in Jesus' righteousness. It says to be found in him. Jesus eating with these sinners is something that will knock you over if you really understand it. It means no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the distinction that Jesus is recognizing in Mark 2 is not between the good people and the bad people. The distinction that's more important, that's dividing people, the distinction Jesus is recognizing now is between the proud people and the humble people. That's the one that counts. That's the one that matters. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I'm not worthy. You don't owe me a good life. You don't. You owe me nothing but wrath. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The minute that happens, he rushes in to meet with you and eat with you and be with you. If you say you owe me, you owe me a good life, the minute that happens, I am come for you. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's real Christianity. That's the gospel. That's profound but it's also simple because Jesus says, 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we all qualify. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son and open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you've given us a King, your Son, our Savior. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. There are a number of us right now who probably don't even realize we're being called because our lives seem to be such a mess. But it could be you're trying to teach us your strength is made perfect in weakness. It could be you're trying to get us to see our weakness, our need for you. So, Father, I pray that the people here who realize they're being sought by you, that they would answer your call. Father, some of us are seeking very hard, and we can't seem to find you. But, Lord, you will come to us if we say, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Show me yourself. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid to admit our sins and shortcomings. Forgive us for the self-righteousness that drives people away and work in each of us this year as we live with Mark, a follower of Jesus, as we hear what he hears, given to him by the eyewitnesses of Christ. Thank you for this story of amazing grace. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and his mercy towards sinners like us. Give us, we pray, the faith to believe we can do what Jesus asks us to do. And teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's stand and close singing. Men, you sing with me the first two phrases, ladies, echo. Receive the blessing from God, from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God bless you. I will see you in two weeks.